Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players, and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I was too young to be playing in the bars and saloons when Randy Demon was active in the Yellowknife music scene. I did play with many of the musicians he played with, though, and they all talked about Randy in almost reverential tones. Randy was a very accomplished and educated musician when he landed in Yellowknife, much more so than the other players, and driven to accomplish more. His teaching job in a small northern mining town was but a stepping stone towards that goal. When he did venture out into the local music scene, by default, he mentored the players in the bands he was with turning them on to the new and exciting music in the jazz fusion genre. He played with the band Rainbow Valley, beside Charles Kirkpatrick on bass, Tony Gilchrist on drums, Sandy Wilson on guitar, and Tom Hudson on vocals. Playing six nights a week, the experience that Randy and Charles brought to the band transferred to the other band members as if by osmosis. That's what happens on the stage. I came along shortly after, and that same process came to me through Sandy Wilson, making me a much better player at a young age. Randy reflects fondly on his time up here in those days. Lots of characters, lots of different experiences. But his aspirations for his own music meant that he had to leave the North behind to accomplish his goals. Not the first, and most definitely not the last. Through his dedication to establishing and developing a music program in Yellowknife schools, the music programs I benefited from years later came as a direct result of his commitment. Through his inspiring and enlightening Sandy Wilson, I later came to benefit yet again from the experience that Randy passed on to him. For that, I have much to thank Randy Demon for. Randy starts the interview talking about one of the early rock and roll bands he played with in Salmon Arm, British Columbia. I was in my first band uh, when I was uh, 10 or 11 years old. The name of the band was Sputniks. It was a saxophone, a, a piano and a drummer. And uh, 
You know, I played music all the way through school. I wasn't allowed to play in the school band, even though I could, I could play saxophone, because I was playing in a rock and roll band. And so the, uh, the music teacher said I had to make a choice. Either I could play rock and roll, or I could be in the music program, but I couldn't be in both. So I chose to play in rock and roll bands. In, in my final year of school, he reneged one time. I, I had to sneak into the band room every once in a while to play piano. And if he caught me, he'd throw me out. And I remember uh, I probably was just about ready to graduate from grade 12. And uh, he caught me playing the piano. And of course, I saw him come through the door and I thought, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble here. And he said, no, no, you can stay. And I thought, what? this is a total reversal of, you know, I'm persona non grata, <laughs> even though I'm just a kid. And he said, yeah, you're probably one of the few kids who's going to end up being a musician anyway. So I guess it was okay to play the piano that one time. Anyway, so it was kind of a, a strange time. It was at the time when the Beatles were popular. So I went to see the Beatles in Vancouver. Um, and then I went to uh, UBC. I studied music at UBC. Just tell me about seeing the Beatles. Seeing the Beatles was, I was playing in a band in Kelowna called the Shadrachs. It was a wonderful experience. A good band. A fellow named Craig McCaw was the uh, guitar player, and he ended up being in a band called uh, the Poppy Family. He was the sitar player in the Poppy Family. And Craig McCaw was this very studious, serious young guy who ended up poking up with uh, Susan Pesklovich and Terry Jacks. So Susan Jacks, Terry Jacks, and Craig McCaw. And they were fairly popular. They, they had some hits and that kind of thing. We got the band and we drove to Vancouver to see the Beatles. And it just so happened that the singer in the band was a fellow named uh, Rick Masalem, who had a, a very prominent nose. And it, it, he looked almost identical to Ringo Starr. When we got to Vancouver, we were friends with a guy named John Tanner, who had moved from Kelowna, where he was on, uh, I forget the name, CKOV, I think it was, uh, in Kelowna. But he started working for a guy named Red Robinson in Vancouver for Seafun uh, Radio. And he became Jolly John Tanner. Jolly John Tanner was about six foot seven, had weak ankles, but he had a heck of a, a nice radio voice. The Beatles were supposed to stay at the Hotel Georgia, right downtown of Vancouver. And that's what the word was. So there were thousands and thousands of screaming young girls gathered just waiting to see a glimpse of the Beatles at the Hotel Georgia. So the people at Seafun Radio, just as a, I don't know why, they thought this was a good idea, publicity stunt, they dressed Rick Masalem up to look like Ringo Starr. And they just wanted to see what would happen if they drove him down the road in front of the Hotel Georgia in the midst of this mob. And the car they had was, uh, there was a model of a Mercury or a Monarch back in the 60s, and the back roof went in like this, and you could open the back window. It was a very unusual car. So the back window was open. Anyway, so they did that. So it was, it was Red Robinson, Jolly John Tanner, and Rick Masalem, who was not Ringo Starr, but <laughs> he fooled a lot of people, because somebody saw him. And it's Ringo, and it was just like watching a gigantic vacuum just go, and they were on that car. I mean, they were like three and four thick. There were young ladies crawling in through the back window trying to get at him, take a piece of clothing. 
I mean, apparently, according to Rick, it was a terrifying experience. So. The music was pretty good. It was a, held at Empire Stadium. The warm-up band was Bill Black's Combo. It was a, a single sax kind of... A, they would do songs like White Silver Sands, usually to a shuffle beat. And the warm-up singer was Jackie DeShannon. And Jackie DeShannon was this blonde uh, knockout. Her hit was uh, Put a Little Love in Your Heart. That was her big hit. So she was the warm-up band. And she kind of got the audience into a frenzy. Now the stadium was full. And then there was this area on the grass which was fairly full. When the Beatles came on, the stadium emptied. Everybody went down onto the ground. And you could hardly see the band just because of the dust. You could sort of hear what they were playing, but it was just pandemonium. It was, it was a great experience. So that was the Beatles. So then I moved to Vancouver to go to UBC. And I saw some great shows in Vancouver. I saw Cannonball Adderley live at a little place called Izzy's. So it was Cannonball, his brother Nat Adderley, and um, Joe Salwanal was the piano player. So I saw them when it was the Cannonball Adderley Quintet. I forget who the drummer was. I think Sam Jones was the bass player. And uh, years ago, <clears throat> are we still close that to would be in the early 60s, I guess. Yeah. Who else? I saw Charlie Mingus there in Vancouver. Um, saw a lot of good things anyway. And so I went to UBC. And UBC was run by an interesting fellow named Welton Marcus. And Welton Marcus had been a, um, a film writer in Hollywood. He was a, a composer. And he knew all kinds of guys. He knew Igor Stravinsky. He knew uh, you know, all of these, these guys personally. In fact, Igor Stravinsky came to UBC uh, because Welton Marcus was the head of the faculty there. So it was an interesting musical experience learning at UBC in those days. It was, you know, the early stages of the faculty. They, they had an electronics lab before anybody, you know, it was at the time of Yuzhichevsky uh, and uh, Iannis, Xanakis and, you know, Boulay, this kind of thing. So it was, it was a kind of a modern approach, but they had some good traditional teaching as well. I studied oboe. I studied with a woman named um, Jean Couthard Adams. I don't know if you've heard of her. Some, I think now she's known as Jean Couthard. She's passed on by now. But I studied composition with her. The environment there when, when you were going, I mean, you talked about the electronics lab, and that was probably very much cutting, cutting edge in the early 60s. That was cutting edge. And the program itself, um, you mentioned a couple of people, but uh, as far as like other professors, instructors, musicians, well, the instructor's a fellow named Cortland Hulberg. He was the guy who had the electronics lab. And uh, he also had a small chamber choir. And his chamber choir became, after he finished his tenure there, it became something called Phoenix. And the Phoenix Choir out of Vancouver, I think at one point about 15 years ago, something like that, in competition, was named uh, the world's best choir. It was a remarkable choir, and the UBC chamber singers were um, a remarkable choir. Now, I had sung since I was a kid, but I never took any vocal training. Actually, I did. I took uh, two lessons with a, um, a fellow named Robert Morris, and he wanted to turn me into a lyric tenor, and I wasn't ready for that, so I withdrew. But in, the, in my last year in the music faculty, uh, Carlton Hulberg was looking for a tenor, and of course, 
there were a lot of very good tenors there. But he asked me to, to sing because um, a lot of the music that Stravinsky wrote, Elliot Carter wrote, um, uh, Morton Feldman, people who were writing kind of avant-garde chamber music, uh, choral music, they were often looking for the sound of the ordinary man. Like if we did a Bach cantata, they'd use a trained tenor, but there were a lot of parts. Stravinsky Mass, for example, there's a tenor solo, which you almost need to have somebody, an untrained voice to sing. I mean, they do it with a trained voice. So that was what he was looking for. What he was looking for was somebody who could sing in tune, essentially, and had a voice that had a certain quality. I could sing high, and that was it. So, so very much rooted in the classical uh, genre there. Uh, uh, I was in the classical genre there completely, although I played gigs outside as well. Yeah. But within UBC, uh, that was yeah, that, that was it was classical, classical and, and, and choral music, okay, yeah, and the electronics. Level. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And that's so right. If you, if you wanted to go to the devil's music, you have to. <laughs> yeah, but at that point, it was no longer the devil's music. <laughs> I mean, we met some nice people. Craig and I, when we were with the Shadrachs, we used to go to these things in usually in the interior of BC, sometimes on the coast, called the Battle of the Bands. Right, and there we was seven or eight bands playing. The band which always won was a band from Vancouver, a band that had its own club called Elegant Parlor, and it was called uh, Little Daddy and the Bachelors. Tommy Chong, the the actor guy, he was the guitar player. The singer uh, was a guy named Tom Melton, and he was, I, I think he was in the movie Animal House. You know the one where the there's this black band playing behind a, a cage. I think that that's, at least in part, Daddy and the Bachelors. So anyway, I was studying oboe and I was getting better at it. And uh, I auditioned for the National Youth Orchestra and I got in. And uh, I went to Toronto on my first trip east and uh, played oboe. And I was, you know, a, 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 I'd say a very good player, but I was looking for a job. And I was looking for a job to play principal oboe. Principal oboe and second oboe are almost like two different instruments. So um, the principal gets all the nice melodies and doesn't have to play that much. The second oboe ends up doubling the second clarinet or, you know, whatever. I actually wanted to just continue studying, but I was married, I had two children, and I had a bit of debt. So I took a year of education thinking I would try teaching. Well, I had an opportunity to practice my teaching skills in uh, teacher practice sessions, and I knew almost right from the, the get-go it wasn't my cup of tea. So I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was just going to stay in Vancouver and sort of become active and hopefully get a job playing oboe. And so um, I met, and I can't remember how I met this fellow, but a guy from Yellowknife. His name was Bernard Gilly. There were no music teachers in the Northwest Territories. Nowhere. Okay, this is 1969 by now, I think. 68, 69, I think. And so he's down there in person. He's the director of education for the whole territories. And he's looking for somebody to start music programs in the territories. So I start this conversation with him, and I'm not sure where took place. It took in a place in an armories, but I don't even know why I was there. I think I was with some friends who were looking for a teaching job. Anyway, um, he started to talk to me and he was telling me that it would be good if I, you know, you should come up to Yellowknife and start some, you know, start things. We need somebody like you. And 
I was not too excited about the idea, and uh, and then he started talking about the money. I'm trying to remember, but it seems to me that to teach in, in Vancouver, you were making about seven or eight thousand dollars. In Yellowknife, you were making eleven or twelve thousand. Plus, there was all kinds of extras. Plus, this guy was a smart old codger. So he um, he said, you know. I think we could manage a signing bonus if you came up here to Yellowknife. So I got a $2,000 signing bonus, which, I mean, that was going to eliminate my student debt, and all I had to do is drive my family to Yellowknife. But he was smart. He gave me $1,000 after I'd signed. I'll give you $1,000 now, and you get the other 1000 when you come to Yellowknife. So I thought, well, I'll do it for a year. I'll, I'll go up to Yellowknife for a year and uh, then I'll come back to Vancouver. So uh, we drove to Yellowknife. We drove in, it was almost September when we drove up there, and uh, I had an old car, it was a 57 Chevrolet um, that had a rope holding down the hood and the trunk. I built a wooden box to put all of our possessions in with a tarpaulin over the roof. What I didn't realize before I headed across the Mackenzie Highway is that the door seals were shot. Anyway, so then we went up, but we finally started on our way. When we got onto the gravel, the generator in my car broke down. So we were three days on the Mackenzie Highway. It, was, it took us three days to make that drive. Finally got to Yellowknife, and by the time we got there, we looked like those, uh, those um, Filipino bushmen, you know, the ones that have mud all over the body. We were just, I mean... You could hardly even tell it was human beings. We got to the Yellowknife. Our apartment wasn't ready. We stayed in the Yellowknife Inn, right on top of where the bands were playing downstairs. You know, it was it was tough going. I was not impressed with Yellowknife. I can remember thinking, God, the trees are so small and there's so much dust, and you know everything was rough. And we just came from Vancouver, where everything was lush and green and. My contract was divided between three school boards, I guess, to pay my salary. So I taught at Sir John Franklin, and I taught at uh, the parochial school, the separate school, and uh, the elementary school, uh, the one that went to grade, I think it went to grade 8 at the time. Sir John, I believe, started grade 9. So the push was on for a, um, a wind program, a, a band program, which I started. I started in the elementary school and in the high school at the same time. But it ignored the fact that at least half the school at that time was made up of Native students from the settlements because the settlements, most of them went to grade 8. So kids from Copper Mine, you know, Lushu kids from Arctic Red River, just I mean, from all over the place. They were all there. They lived in a Keicho Hall. And playing wind instruments was totally foreign to them. So I ordered 25 guitars, I think, just Yamaha classical guitars. I, you know, I could play a little bit of guitar. I'm not a good guitar player by any stretch, but well enough to play chords. And that program really went well because Inuit kids, some of them, especially around that age, they're shy, mm -hmm. but they love music and they love to sing. 
So those classes were always full. There was no kind of curriculum per se. I would write out songs. I would write out the changes and the lyrics, you know, Gordon Lightfoot songs, Johnny Mitchell songs, any song, any song they wanted to learn about. That was it. So that was what the music program consisted of. The listening program, everybody liked to listen. So they used the listening system, the listening booths. At lunchtime, there were always kids in there listening to music. The students that you had, to, like you were talking about the guitar classes, and there was probably right. lots of students from the, the Acacia Hall coming in, and just even thinking about you describing the listening labs and, and the headphones and stuff right. like that, chances are you probably blew a few of their minds that way, just as, just as far as they never would have been exposed to some of the musics that you were bringing in. From them. Yeah, I don't want to overstate it, but at that time I felt, it was probably their ages, but they were not overly communicative, but they were there, they were sharp, you know, they knew what was going on, mm -hmm. yeah, and they, they knew how to take advantage of things. One particular person I remember was um, Alexis Amyuk. He was from Baker Lake, and he, he could play guitar better than any of the other people from the, uh, the settlements. And um, he sang, he was good, he was, he was, a, he was a performer. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that yes, was kind of that yeah. was kind of the environment. And Yellowknife initially, it did not look very appealing to me at all. Um, I really wasn't all that happy being there. But I worked my buns off, and I was still looking for a job to play oboe, uh, an orchestra to play oboe in. So I was spending you know, a couple hours a day on my own horn, and um, looking for auditions in the south. I remember the first year, within about three months, because of the dryness, my oboe cracked. So I had to send it away to Toronto to have it repaired. And of course, a three-week repair a job ended up taking three months. And you know, it was just, things were not going well when I first got there. But at the same time, I, I also started playing in the bars. It was just a, a kind of a, a diversion in a sense. I enjoyed that that aspect of it, and I met some amazing, I mean, not just amazing musicians, but I met some amazing people. I want to say also, because I, I said that I didn't like Yellowknife, but the, what happened in the first year was that around about February, I was getting desperate to make money. That's partly why I started playing in the bands on the weekends. I, I wanted to get out of there in June. I figured one year I could handle it. So. The very first year, I couldn't have even afford to go south for the summer. So that was a kind of, um, you know, a bit of a letdown. So I bought a canoe. There, a fellow sold me a beautiful old chestnut uh, canoe made in, uh, made in New Brunswick. Beautiful, beautiful uh, design. So in a way, that was a gift because then I got to spend my summer in Yellowknife and I got to know Yellowknife. We went canoeing almost every day. My tennis game improved uh, really well, you know, even though the black flies were, you know, eating all the blood out of my body, I would play tennis, you know, play tennis at 10 o'clock at night. And so I, I started to like Yellowknife and I made some friends there. And I must say that the friends I made in Yellowknife are still my friends. There's something about that environment, which is, it's extreme, you know, when the sun is up, it's just there for a long time. When it's winter, it's winter for a long time. And so I think that that has a tendency of pushing in a kind of an empathetic way, pushing people together, and it makes them closer. At that point, by the end of the first summer, I was hooked on Yellowknife. Were you so, playing? Were you playing in the bands? I was playing in the bands, yeah, and I was, yeah. yeah, I played with Gary Tees and John Tees and their band, I forget, forget what their band was called. I didn't play in UM Squared, 
but um square folded at a certain point but i did know kevin and, and i met tom at that time yeah and then sandy wilson showed up and when sandy showed up i met sandy in the coffee shop at the yellowknife inn and the bass player oh guarantees was supposed to be a bass player for a, a job that was happening on a friday night or a saturday night and he couldn't make it something came up so somebody said there was this guitar player who was a really good player so i met, went met sandy i introduced myself to him and i asked him if he would play bass guitar just for this one night and he said no man i don't play bass guitar and i said yeah but you could right and he said no man i mean he's such a principled person just no flexibility i you know i felt like kicking him i just <laughs> that was our first encounter and then later on we uh we became friends and uh and uh, I would say that Rainbow Valley, that, that band with uh, Tommy Hudson and uh, Sandy playing guitar, Kelly Tippett playing drums, um, I was playing piano. I played a Fender Rhodes piano with a wah-wah pedal on it, which it was vicious. It was just, you know, <laughs> you know give me all of the, uh, the rhythm guitar tracks, some ACD combined, and it, you might come close to the sound of that, that Rhodes piano. And... Um, and Tommy Hudson, of course, was a wonderful singer. Charles Kirkpatrick was the perfect band bassist. It was all about rhythm. He just laid it out. You know, some people go, bonk, donk, donk, donk. He would go, it would be like, he just had so much backbeat and so much um, the splitting time going on. And his bass didn't really sound great. He had an old precision bass. I doubt that the strings had ever been changed on it. It sounded more like thwack than dong, you know. But it was it was just so enjoyable playing with him. And Kelly Tippett was an extremely um, uh, he was an an up upper end. You know how some bass players are they come from the bottom and it's like boom, boom. But some are like all on the top he was a kind of a top end a more top end drummer but he tuned right into what Charles was doing Charles really was the core of and then the rest of us I mean Sandy has always been such a a wonderful um, he, the tone the, the sound he gets out of his guitar you know it's not that he plays so many notes uh, it's in, in fact he's actually a very cautious guitar player but he listens and he has a really nice harmonic sense and the sound that he gets out of that beaten up old jazz master or whatever it is. So it's always a pleasure, just the sound in that band, Rainbow Valley, I think it's as good as I've, I, I mean, I've played in a lot of groups with some just amazing players, but that band was just, it just went right to your soul. It was so much fun. We played, uh, I think we played five nights a week, I'm not sure, you know, and the songs, and Tom Hudson, didn't matter what song uh, he was singing, he had his own voice, it was still him, but he had that ability to, to sing, you know, he could sound like J.J. Cale, he could sound like, you know, whoever, he just, an amazing, Tom, Tom Hudson, and he, his personality, even though he wasn't gregacious at all, he wasn't the, the kind of guy who would tell jokes on the stage, there was something about him that just warmed the audience right up. You know, the Yellowknife Inn, I don't know what it was like when you were there, but it, it, I can still sort of see that they had a black and white pattern on the wall. It was, 
it was what's the word uh, garish. yes <laughs> that's perfect yeah it was just garish it was just awful to look at and the same people would be sitting at the same type of tables every night you know and the same things would happen i mean you know, that's happening okay it's 10 13 or you know just whatever so but enjoyable nice to be a part of that i, I really enjoyed that so your time was mostly in the illinois fame with rainbow valley then yeah uh, yeah and, yeah rainbow valley was such a great experience and even though uh, gladys and, and charles were gladys was managing the gallery did you guys ever play there <clears throat> did we i i did play at the gallery and i'm trying to i wonder i don't think we ever played there when i was with the group mm. um i played there with john tees Gary was quiet. His brother was a, a, a quieter, sort, sort of a, a little in the background. John was just ha such a happy-go-lucky personality. And I think when he was happiest was when he had a guitar in his hand and was singing tunes. And he just he just exuded that. You know, you just you bought into it. And I really enjoyed playing with John Tees. He was he was a nice player. There were other bands, and I'm just trying to think of who was in them. You know, at a certain point, Sandy was in quite a few of them. But I think maybe I, I might have played at the beginning when I started playing. I think it was mostly with John, John Tees and uh, and Gary, and I can't remember when I played with Tommy Hudson and uh, Kevin Mackey. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and you'd also be playing the Legion and the Legion and the Elks. Legion and Elks Halls. Yeah. Yeah. They may have even had a routine where it would be the Legion one weekend and the, the Elks the next yeah. kind of idea, yeah. and they were always full. And so many young people in Yellowknife, of course, and uh, sure. it was it was a nice mix of people. It was, uh, you know, you might have a bunch of nurses there and a bunch of miners there, and you know, just a good mix of native, non-native community. It was, and there were there were fights, but usually the, the fights would have, they wouldn't be about anything of consequence. They would be about somebody just being stupid or having drunk too much, you know. Mm -hmm. At two o'clock in the morning, the Kentucky Fried Chicken, on the same street as the Legion, would still be open, right? So people would line up, even in winter, outside because there was only room for about. Well, there was only room for six people inside. There might be twenty inside, right? When you were playing with Rainbow Valley, what was your book? What were the songs? Um, war. Uh, is, is Cisco Kid? Is that War? Cisco yes. Kid was friend of mine. JJ uh, Kale, Sandy does a great job on JJ Kale. It's just in his in his wheelhouse. Oh God, not much Beatle type stuff. Um, David Bowie stuff. Um, Three Dog Night. Oh, uh, we did uh, Credence stuff. Uh, Tom Tommy Hudson. He could do a, a replica of. Uh, uh, the Credence uh, singer, uh, yeah, Fogarty. Yeah, um, I think we did a Doors tune or two. I think we did probably did uh, what's the one? Booby dooby dooby. Yeah, Riders and Storm. I think we did that. I don't think we did any rock like old fifties rock and roll stuff. I think it was mostly sort of relatively contemporary stuff. Everything we did, probably because of Charles Kirkpatrick, it wasn't just a matter of playing the changes. It was it had an added ingredient, which 
I think came from him or that feel and, and it was so easy just to drop into it. I've had some, you know, maybe a half a dozen really superb musical experiences in my life. Ones you can say, you know, that's for me, that's the epitome. I would say that playing with that band was certainly a highlight because uh, it was just a nice experience. I would like to thank Randy for sharing his rich musical life story with musicians of the Midnight Sun. To hear more, see photographs of his life, and the full interview transcript, check out musiciansofthemidnightsun.com, linked in the show notes. You can follow along as well on Facebook and Instagram. If you would like to support the continuation of this project, please donate it on our website, musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. I would like to thank the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee and the Northwest Territories Creative Industries Economic Recovery Fund for supporting this podcast series and to thank the Northwest Territories Arts Council, Government of the Northwest Territories Department of Education, Culture and Employment, the Yellowknife Community Foundation, and the City of Yellowknife Heritage Committee for supporting the website so far. A full list of supporters can be found on the website. The archival audio of this podcast is from the Northern Musicians Project Collection at the Northwest Territories Archives. I'm Pat Brayton. Thanks for listening.